You found us through fly fishing. You'll stay for our passion and the community. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. Yeah, but he doesn't get it. How come fly fishermen don't get it? You only haul with the short power snap. Look for where people walk and the insides of bends and hunt those. The roof blew off and the interior walls got sucked out. And the trees are just coming up. And I mean, he's clearly not going to clear the trees. It is not a fly fishing story. It's a story about me trying to understand my brother through fly fishing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Today's episode is sponsored by Togan's Fly Shop, who provides superior quality products at an affordable price. An amazing resource for fly tying materials, tools, and fishing accessories. Since 2005, Togans has been over delivering on price, service, and passion. And now you can check out that Togans buzz for yourself. Right now, you can head over to wetflyswing.com slash Togans to get started. That's T-O-G-E-N-S. You support this podcast by clicking through that link to Togans online. Today's episode is sponsored by Daiichi Fishing Hooks, a leader in the fly fishing industry and still the world's sharpest hook. Tempered with carbon-rich steel, Daiichi offers superior penetration without compromising the hook's structural integrity. You can head over right now to wetflyswing.com Daiichi and check out what they have going and check out these killer hooks. That's Daiichi, D-A-I-I-C-H-I. We've been waiting for you. Follow our guests, follow us on Instagram, and share this episode and the love if you enjoy this podcast. And we are live in three, two, one. How you doing, James? I'm doing good. Great. I'm excited about the conversation we're going to have today because we're going to talk about brook trout, uh, a species that I think uh, a lot of people love around the country. You know, whether you're East Coast or West Coast, I was just talking to somebody out in the um, Yellowstone area and they were talking about how brook trout are a, a very popular species in some of the still waters out there. So I want to dig into all the brook trout. You know, you're, I think we're going to focus a little more on the East Coast today. But um, before we get there, talk about how you came to be in, you know, in the conservation. How did you come to be focusing on brook trout or what's your background here? I'm not a, uh, a subject matter expert. I actually just, what I do in my capacity as a volunteer for Pennsylvania Native Fish Coalition is I do what's called science communication. So I take kind of this esoteric kind of um, technical fishery science, uh, you know, research findings. And what I do is I kind of read through these uh, papers and I discuss them often with the uh, authors, the real PhDs, the real fishery scientists. And I, I try to get a, a message distilled down to, you know, what the layperson can easily understand on the importance and the findings of some of this fishery science and what the implications are for anglers, stakeholders and naturalists, people who want to see these these native fish stick around. Gotcha. Okay. And, and do you focus on a certain region, area, and species? Or how does that look for you, what you do? So um, since I'm uh, one of the board members of uh, PA, uh, Native Fish Coalition, I just work in the state of Pennsylvania on issues facing native fish. So 
anyone not familiar with Native Fish Coalition, it's a grassroots donor-funded 501c3 nonprofit that um, essentially was formed for the protection and uh, restoration and uh, you know advocacy of native fish. So um, my Pennsylvania chapter within Pennsylvania is where I kind of uh, you know do this outreach and communication. How I got into it was you know I'm just an angler like everyone else you know listening to this podcast. I'd been obsessed with kind of fishing and streams and you know what lives in them and lakes ever since I was a young kid and. When I, um, after college and graduate school, I kind of, you know, got into the whole fly fishing uh, scene in Pennsylvania. I had previously been a fly fisherman since I was, you know, like 10 or 12, but in New Jersey and New York. And when I got here, I realized that, you know, slowly through just getting exposure to different people that um, there was kind of a, a big divide between anglers kind of knowledge of what was affecting, you know, native fish species, mainly native brook trout um, versus fisheries scientists kind of understanding. And I kind of saw that there was two different, very different perspectives. One of, you know, kind of myths and pessimism more so on the angling side, and then one of kind of optimism and a much more nuanced understanding of native brook trout's conservation status on the fisheries science side. Oh, nice. And yeah, and I think you might have uh, listened to one of the episodes we had a, I believe it was a professor that talked about brook trout. And I think, you know, I think part of that picture was a little bit dim. You know, we hear this sometimes throughout where you you talk about with, especially now with climate change, you know, aridification, you know, whatever you want to call it, temperatures are warmer, streams are warmer. And I think a lot of people are worried. They think, yeah, maybe are we going to be able to save these brook trout? So paint the optimistic, like why should we be optimistic about brook trout? Happy to. So, you know, when we look at what affects native brook trout and why we're, we're losing them, climate change is obviously, you know, in the literature, something that is very important. You know, you can't, you can't talk about native brook trout conservation status without climate change. However, uh, you know, another aspect of native brook trout conservation that, uh, you know, I'll say you can't talk about native brook trout without talking about it is invasive fish species. And it's kind of ironic that I say that because we really don't talk about it. Um, You know, in terms of climate change, any species faced with a stressor over a given period of time you know, it's going to have adaptation strategies that will either be successful or not successful. And when you look at brook trout, obviously with climate change, you know, cold water is what we're talking about. So, um, however, there's areas in the brook trout's native range where the water is plenty cold. It's not, you know, the effects of climate change have not really hit those watersheds to a degree that they are in, you know, uninhabitable for brook trout. So there's plenty of streams out there that run in the high 50s, you know, low 60s, you know, in the dog days of summer, at least in Pennsylvania. And native brook trout aren't in those streams anymore. And they're not choked with sediment. You know, these are fully forested streams. So the question is, is if climate change is not appearing to be the kind of deal breaker there, what is? And that's what led me to kind of get into reading all this stuff and talking with these fisheries scientists because, you know, I didn't understand why we have watersheds and streams in Pennsylvania that 
on paper, you know, they're cold, they're clean, they're forested, they don't have brook trout. So digging a little bit deeper, I looked at, there was a status and threats assessment done by the Eastern Brook Trout Joint Venture, which is a, you know, collection of partners and states working to, um, you know, on brook trout conservation in the East and its native range. And I looked at Pennsylvania, and this was back in the early 2000s, when they compiled the threats for brook trout in Pennsylvania, uh, invasive uh, brown trout were actually third ahead of development and urbanization and uh, in terms of how prevalent they are. And uh, the more I read about this stuff, uh, the more I saw that, you know, there were these effects of uh, invasive fish species. You know, they predated and ate brook trout. They essentially, in climate change, these thermal refuge or cool springs or cold areas come worth their weight in gold. And I started to find research that these invasive trout species pushed brook trout out of thermal refuge into hotter water um, where they couldn't survive. So it wasn't necessarily that the stream was too warm. It was that the brook trout had these adaptation strategies of using the thermal refuge in cold water that the invasive trout were then stopping that adaptation strategy. Other things that I found were uh, invasive, you know, brown and rainbow trout in the east uh, cause, you know, a barrier effect, much like a bad culvert that fish can't get up. Uh, there were studies done showing that these species were actually stopping brook trout from moving through systems like a culvert. And they could tell this because they looked at the, the, um, the genes from the brook trout and the, the genes of one population wasn't getting into the genes of another population, kind of illustrating that barrier. effect. So there was this whole litany of, you know, effects from these invasive species. And it was kind of like the elephant in the room. And all I heard people talking about was climate change, warming, and, you know, habitat loss development. And no one was talking about why all these, you know, forested streams and state parks, state game land or national forests here in Pennsylvania were getting overrun with invasive species. And the narrative was replacement, not displacement. Everyone said, oh, well, you know, climate change is just getting hotter. And, uh, you know, these brook trout can't survive in these streams anymore. And, you know, if you go temp them, uh, that certainly wasn't the case based on their preferred temperature range in a lot of cases. In other cases, it was, you know, kind of close, but those adaptation strategies and, and hot weather and hot stream temps were, you know, are likely being affected there. So the optimism in native brook trout conservation comes from the fact that when you look at climate change and you acknowledge it as a serious threat, but then you look at the invasive species aspect, we haven't taken our foot off the gas pedal on the invasive species aspect in Pennsylvania. You know, we have the third most hatchery raised salmonids in the whole United States hmm. in Pennsylvania. And we have essentially launched, uh, you know, an invasion of uh, invasive hatchery trout that has been around since the times of, you know, since the, the 1800s uh, in Pennsylvania. So, when you think about, wow, you have all these big kind of scary things like climate change, urbanization, habitat loss, no one thinks about like, man, we've launched a man-made assault of millions and millions of invasive, you know, trout species yeah, invasive brown trout. on native brook trout in these cold, clean, forested streams. And we've never seen what brook trout can do without this kind of man-made assault. 
Right. What is the, you mentioned brown trout was the number three uh, impact. What were the top two above invasive species? Uh, I think sedimentation and land use. So like it kind of uh, ties in with like Pennsylvania is a very agriculture heavy state and uh, a lot of deforestation. We're also kind of a lumber producing state. And uh, there were times in Pennsylvania's history when you would look at the mountains and they were just dirt hills. Every single tree had been taken. There's these breathtaking, um, in a bad way, photos from um, the logging era in the northern tier of PA where they're just dirt mounds. And, you know, you can imagine at that time, brook trout, you know, (laughs) that devastated them. But then at the same time as they were dealing with that, you took this invasive species and you kind of piled that on top of them. Um, so as the brook trout were getting wiped out and, you know, no one was really, uh, you know, and that was happening, they also had to deal with this invasion launched by, you know, the post-colonial era human beings. Right. And so those have been there for a while. So those have been there for, I mean, that's amazing, 200 years. I mean, is there stats that show you know, 200 years of, I mean, that's a long time, right? Brown trout have been there. Has this been, are you seeing brook trout now declining at a higher rate than they say 50 years ago, hundred years ago, or what do they have trends and tracking? Are they tracking that? Well, here's the alarming part is that, uh, Pennsylvania fish and boat who is, you know, theoretically responsible for, you know, brook trout conservation. One of their kind of glaring, you know, shortfalls is they're not currently looking at where these brook trout are replacing brown trout. They have a deliverable in their trout management plan that I don't even think they've started on yet. But I mean, 75% of the brook trout deliverables in their trout management plan from the early 2000s are just left un, you know, delivered. <laughs> so, I, you know, I don't... Uh, in terms of um, them looking at where brown trout, um, you know, or invasive brown trout are displacing brook trout, that's something they're really behind on. And that's a theme you'll see throughout this entire podcast is PA is kind of in the stone ages when it comes to native brook trout conservation. Our, we can talk a little bit later, but our neighbors, our neighbors are kind of putting us to shame. Okay. So there are other people do that was going to be my question. So let's just say in general, keep a high level. If you went out to anglers, I guess those people that that love brown trout and brook trout and you said, Hey, we can, here's the deal. We can restore brook trout populations. No problem. The only thing is we have to remove all brown trout uh, and you can't fish for brown trout because they're going to be gone. What do you think the response would be from fly anglers? And do you think it would change over time? Do you think that's something people could get behind? So that is most people's initial reaction, actually. When, when they hear me, you know, use the word invasive brown trout or invasive rainbow trout, you know, they think that that terminology means that they will be removed from all the celebrated, um, you know, classic kind of, uh, you know, invasive brown trout fisheries. And that's not the case because we don't even have the technology to remove you know, invasive brown and rainbow trout from these larger waterways. What we're really talking about is we're talking about, you know, a few very carefully selected smaller streams with barriers in place. And we're talking more about kind of saving, you know, brook trout in areas where we can, rather than, you know, people kind of get this picture in their head of like, 
you know, tanker buses and like, you know, military planes dropping rote known from the sky. Right. Right. <laughs> and that and, and that's not the case. You know, we're more at risk of losing all our brook trout than we are of losing all of our invasive brown and rainbow trout in Pennsylvania by far. So, you know, people really just don't seem to be aware that out of four to five thousand invasive species on planet Earth, brown trout are actually ranked in the top 30. And a lot of people, because of how they have been portrayed and celebrated in the angling literature, are not aware that, you know, brown trout have dominated every continent except uh, Antarctica in terms of their suitable range. I've seen literature from Macintosh and a bunch of other researchers from 2011 saying that wild invasive brown trout occupy nearly 100% of their suitable range on planet Earth. So, you know, people aren't aware that you got invasive brown trout in the Himalayas, you know, threatening uh, native Himalayan snow trout. People aren't aware that you have brown trout in New Zealand threatening native galaxids and causing their disappearance. You know, they're not aware that in middle to southern Africa, you have them collapsing native uh, fish populations there. So there's that whole kind of dichotomy between, yes, they are an invasive species and one of the world's most highly invasive and rainbows being the top 100, not the top 30. But we cannot remove them from these huge celebrated fisheries. No. And we love them, right? That's yeah. the other thing. And, and you go back to, right, part, you mentioned, I think, you know, the parts of the, you go to the West, they're doing, they're trying to eradicate, you know, you look at the Yellowstone area, right, out of the, the upper snake. They're trying to eradicate some of those rainbows and browns. They're focusing on the, the, the cutthroat, right? Yes, and so, but is this more of a, sounds like what you're saying is you narrow down in these really tiny pockets where we know we can keep these populations, but you know, but you really aren't thinking like regionally or even over the country. You're not thinking like, hey, you're going to restore all these no. populations. You're really focused very narrowly. Yeah. So that's the thing is we know that we don't have the technology to remove brown trout from these famous streams. Like, you know, in Pennsylvania, we have Penns, a little Juniata and Spring Creek and Big Fishing Creek. And obviously from a social standpoint, you know, uh, Native Fish Coalition's not going to fight a socially, you know, we realize that these fish have a social value and that fly fishermen do hold them in very high regard. And, you know, we're not here to try to take people's, you know, blue ribbon, you know, right. down trout fisheries where they grow to 20 inches. What we're essentially saying is there are areas where it's both feasible ecologically and feasible socially to, you know, take a population of wild invasive brown trout that doesn't really grow beyond the size of the native brook trout and, you know, do a removal there and, you know, allow the brook trout to, you know, re to either come back where they've been lost or to, you know, dominate the stream. And there's a lot of other ways, you know, native brook trout conservation can happen without just removal. Removal is a very small part of it. And, you know, it's actually probably the there's a lot more that you can do when you have brown trout and brook trout together to favor those brook trout without simply removing. I mean, if you look at states around Pennsylvania, like West Virginia and um, Virginia and uh, Maryland, they're basically taking some research that was done within Pennsylvania um, and ironically isn't used in Pennsylvania that shows that if you manage brook trout populations at more than just a tiny trickle, 
if you take the big main stem stream that might be smallmouth water, might be brown trout water in terms of an angler's perception, and you manage brook trout in all the tributaries and that large main stem, you have much more stable and healthy populations. And what I mean by manage them is no stocking. So obviously you have to have stocking reform. You can't be adding invasive trout species on top of the ones that already exist there in the wild. And then the second thing is, you know, making brook trout catch and release. There's data from Maryland that shows that that did help their uh, brook trout population in the Savage River. And not only did it help the brook trout in there and sustain a 365 day a year wild uh, native brook trout trophy fishery, but it also is a great tool in educating the public. And then the third thing would be allowing harvest of non-natives uh, and invasive trout species by anglers in those watersheds. So essentially, you're not removing those fish. You're not going through with rote known or electroshocking pack, but you're allowing anglers who want to keep something for the table to, to harvest uh, those fish a little bit. So, you know, those kinds of regulations are working like gangbusters in Maryland. West Virginia is using them. Um, Virginia and the National Park Service and the Shenandoah has those. So there's kind of this recipe for success for native brook trout that even in the face of some wild invasive brown trout, these fish and populations seem to be holding their own in a lot of these areas where this is undertaken. Today's episode is sponsored by Jackson Hole Fly Company. They've been designing and manufacturing fly fishing equipment and flies since 1978 in their home base in Wyoming. In 2020, they launched jhflyco.com and started selling gear directly online to anglers all over the country. You can go ahead and right now and check out their huge selection of uh, rods, reels, fly lines, tools, accessories. Uh, and right now, if you go to jhflyco.com swing, you can get 25% off your first order. Just like Amazon, they'll ship everything directly to your door, saving you time and money. But unlike Amazon, you'll be supporting a great fly shop and this podcast by simply grabbing a few uh, products, maybe just a couple of flies. Check it out. There we go. Get free shipping right now. All orders over $50 and uh, get that 25% off your first order. jhflyco.com slash swing. Okay, back to the show. And at what point, this is maybe more of a larger picture, but at what point do brown trout become, you know, essentially a, a wild fish, native fish more, you know, I mean, how long does it take until that fish or will it always be an invasive fish, even say 500 years from now? Yeah, that's a good question, Dave. So uh, invasive is a simple definition. It just means non-native, which means that something did not evolve there. So if you look at an organism, it's got all these tools in its genetic code, and those tools are acquired over whatever, how long, hundreds of thousands of years, millions of years, however long it has evolved to tailor and adapt itself to its environment. It's custom built, essentially, for where it evolved. So brown trout are, you know, evolved, obviously, Europe or wherever, northern Africa. So they're non-native. And then something that's non-native isn't always necessarily invasive. Uh, invasive implies that uh, there is ecological or economic harm. So as I told you, brown trout are top 30 in the world out of four to 5,000 most damaging invasive species. So brown trout are really heavy on that damage part. Um, and it's not just brook trout. I mean, it's, you know, uh, there's evidence against, you know, darters, endangered darters, endangered crayfish here in the east. I mean, it's totally a full scale ecological 
you know, negative for those cold water ecosystems and the food webs. So, you know, they really won't ever become native because, you know, that adaptation, you know, can, has been over millions of years for them. Right. So they won't be native, but they could become maybe in some areas not invasive. Well, um, that's the hard part is that right now we're still seeing, you know, tons of research come out showing that negative effect on the ecosystem. And what we find is, you know, at least from what we can see, there's not really a time where the damage kind of levels out or it reverses. An example would be, let's take a look at invasive uh, lake trout out west. Uh, I'm sure you, you're, you're, you're familiar with the, uh, the Yellowstone uh, lake. Yeah. yeah. So what you have is you have Yellowstone cutthroat trout. You have invasive lake trout that were put out there, and they prey on the Yellowstone cutthroat trout. So when that happened, those Yellowstone cutthroat trout had a life history strategy where they run out of the lake up into tributaries to spawn. When the lake trout ate them, the lake trout did not adapt that same life history strategy. So all the predators, you know, grizzly bears, bald eagles that, you know, required that, uh, you know, life history strategy to eat in the tributaries um, were disrupted. And you had, you know, skinny bears and, you know, birds cannibalizing each other because they couldn't have Yellowstone cutthroat trout. So it was a whole entire food web impact. And, you know, when the removal efforts started and the Yellowstone cutthroat numbers came back up, you know, obviously a lot of that got better. So what happened was those lake trout ate, you know, all the food, you know, in the lake that they could. And you had a trophy invasive species that was introduced. And then once they cycled through all the food and, you know, burned through it unsustainably, they stunned out at, you know, whatever, 20 inches or so tiny, like small lake trout. So that lack of sustainability and then the fish stunting out is called boom and bust kind of dynamics. Um, or a lot of times boom and bust dynamics are when they proliferate to a high level and then the population crashes. So this is a very common, you know, concept with invasive species. And that's why to your question about will they ever become native, when you make such large scale disruptions to the food web with an invasive species, it's really hard to undo that. Yeah. Or I guess the question would be, will they ever become uh, not invasive? Yeah. So they would have to, all that harm would have to uh, go away for them to be not, you know, invasive. Right. They will always be an invasive species, essentially. That's no matter what. Even if we take out, we catch and kill a lot of brown trout in a system to down where there's only a few, they still will be invasive species because that's what they do. They eat other fish. Yes. Now... To your point, though, um, in the Savage River in Maryland, this is where those three kind of, um, you know, catch and release on native harvest and managing at watershed scale um, kind of concepts have been implemented. And uh, there is actually a micro population of brown trout in the Savage uh, that is, you know, sample. They find a couple one year, none the next, and they find a couple more, but they can never take hold um, it seems at, at this point, because, you know, the management is for wild native brook trout and the density of wild native brook trout is just, you know, so great that it makes it hard for them to invade and makes it hard for them to take over. Right. 
to take over to basically get a population going. Yeah, that ta- it makes it hard for them to start a healthy population essentially. Exactly, because you know the so while there's no safe amount of invasive fish species, like I said, removal completely is not our only tool. And we do have all these other tools that we're currently not using in Pennsylvania. It's very interesting. There's a, a very bright individual out west in Utah, I believe. Her name's Dr. Phaedra Buddy. And she does research on the effects of invasive brown trout on um, cutthroats. I forget if they're Lahontan or I think it's in the, in the Lo- they're in the Logan River. I forget which ones they are. But anyway, what she found was she measured a stream that increases in elevation and she was surveying it for brown trout and cutthroat trout. And the curious part is that what she expected to find was she expected to find brown trout up until a certain elevation when the water cooled down and the cutthroat, you know, would then dominate with the colder water, you know, because we kind of have tunnel vision on that, that water temperature factor. So she expected to find a switch at that temperature kind of point. But what she actually found was she found that the brown trout stopped once the native cutthroats hit a certain density. And this is a, a concept that called density-dependent biotic resistance, meaning that, you know, there is a resistance that native fish have to invasive species at certain densities, it seems like. Now, you know, there needs to be more research into this, but there was another paper that she was a part of called the Invasive Native Paradox. And it basically looked at, you know, why do brook trout, when they're invasive in Colorado, do awesome? And why are they declining in their native range in the east? We kind of see this paradox where it's like... That's right. Yeah, you know, so... And then with, uh, you know, cutthroat trout, you know, some of these cutthroat trout are doing great. I think they put Bonnevilles in a tailwater in Arkansas or something. Yeah. And then, you know, they, they have their own conservation issues out out west. And, and the same is true of brown trout. You know, native brown trout in... Um, in, in Sweden, and they're actually negatively affected by invasive brook trout out there. So you have this non-native uh, native paradox, and essentially, it, as part of this paper, you know, she mentioned that you know, with there's this thought that we have to get rid of all of them, and that maybe uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure it was based on her previous work you know, maybe tipping the scales or tipping the balance in some cases might be effective. And, you know, that's probably in fisheries management, whether it's regulations to favor native trout or regulations to allow more harvest of invasive trout, where we probably don't try hard enough or kind of you know, you miss all the shots you don't take kind of thing. Right. And you mentioned the the how to manage brook trout. So you mentioned no stocking, catch and release and then harvest of non-native. So when you say that, are we talking, so for example, I guess you mentioned smaller streams, larger streams, but you're really talking, it could be larger streams. So you could go down into one of your popular streams, the, you, whatever that is in you Pennsylvania. Could, and, yeah, yeah you, you could, but that's where you kind of hit that socially, um, you know, that social factor of, you know, we do acknowledge that invasive trout species have a social value. You know, I love to fish for wild invasive brown trout. You know, I love brown trout as a species in their native range. I was actually out until 3.30 a.m. this morning night fishing for wild invasive brown trout in a local Pennsylvania spring creek. So, you know, I I love fishing for these fish, too. And, um, you know, where the public is 
valuing these fish, that's not the place to go and do these, you know, that, that, that's a hill that you don't want to die on. Okay. So where would you go for, let's say, the no stocking, the catch and release, the harvest of non-native fish? Where in Pennsylvania might you do that? That's an excellent question and something I'd love to talk about. So in Pennsylvania, you know, you have the Little J, you have Spring Creek, you have Big Fishing Creek, you have the Lackawanna, you have Penn's Creek, and all these areas where, you know, famous rivers where the, the public is not going to be accepting of invasive brown trout removal or, you know, or, or even just harvest regulations in a lot of cases. But, you know, in terms of if you're in native fish conservation, you want to look at, you know, where can, where's the low hanging fruit, where can it make an impact without, you know, fighting, you know, a lot of these kind of uh, battles that you're not going to win. So there's in our Northern tier, there are a lot of freestone streams in like the Potter, Tioga kind of county area. If someone's looking at the state of Pennsylvania and you're picturing New York sitting on top of it like a book on a table, you know, those counties that touch the New York border in PA, um, you know, streams like, you know, if you look at what other states are doing, our kind of management areas should probably be up there with the catch and release, the you know, managing at watershed scale and allowing the harvest of non-natives like Kettle Creek, you know, Pine Creek, Cedar Run and Slate Run. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of other um, watersheds up there where no one goes up there to fish for wild invasive brown trout. I mean, I mean, they do, but they don't like it's not a trophy fishery. They'd be just as happy catching a brook trout. Gotcha. Right. Makes sense. It's a size thing. So literally it is a thing like, hey, these famous rivers with giant brown trout are well known. Don't mess with those. Yeah. We're not, we don't care if brook trout go extinct in those areas. That's part of the potential. But well, what you're saying yeah, is I wouldn't go that upstream. Far. There's, there's still things we could do to manage for brook trout in those larger streams without removing brown trout from them. Like you could still do catch and release for brook trout at watershed scale in Penn's Creek. You know, Penn's Creek is an example where we've seen an uptick in native brook trout in the main stem in the past four to five years. And that's actually a, you know, a population that has multiple different streams coming into it. And, you know, brook trout, we'd really like to keep around. So while, you know, it wouldn't be socially acceptable to say, you know, let's drag all the brown trout out of Penn's Creek, you could certainly still protect brook trout through catch and release uh, regulations. You could, you know, look at their life history in Penn's Creek and try to protect you know, aspects of their life history and how they move and stuff like that. You know, there's things that you can do. Yeah. Um, yep. Gotcha. Yeah. So there is stuff like, the, like you mentioned, there's the sedimentation, there's the land use, there's still climate change, things like, so there are other things. This isn't not just a one, you know, one trick pony where you're just yeah. saying, Hey, we, we either remove them or we don't. There's literally, it's just, it's like a, um, the toolbox, right? This is one little tool in the toolbox. And the, what you're saying is, is the upper base in our areas where we can actually really restore or recover that's is that kind of the focus here in those areas where people aren't focused on giant brown trout yeah well i think that's where i think that's the area we like to focus because that's where some of the healthiest brook trout populations are especially you know kettle creek and um some of the larger other streams up there but it's also because of that social factor where you know there really a lot of the large brown trout up there are stocked. You know, unfortunately, there's private clubs that are stocking massive, you know, pellet fed brown trout. But the wild brown trout up in that area, on average, are not much larger than the uh, the brook trout. So that's an area where you know we would like to kind of 
choose the brook trout over the invasive species from a management perspective. And I, I should be pointed out that like when you talk about doing restoration, I mean, I'm sure you've seen examples near you at home. When you think about restoration, one thing you think about is money, right? I mean, what's it going to cost to get the Klamath dams out? What's it going to cost to get, and that's well worth, that's, that's money well spent right there. Yeah. Like where could that money be? That's the whole thing is like, okay, cost benefit. Where could we use that money? If we don't use it in the dams, where else can we put it to help these fish, right? Exactly. But, you know, I'm a big fan of those dam removals and it's well worth the money, you know, to recover wild native steelhead and wild native uh, Chinook salmon. But the kind of mind blowing thing is, Dave, in our case, if you look at the cost of implementing the recipe for success that Maryland, West Virginia, and um, Virginia have implemented in some of these watersheds, the kind of three-headed strategy of catch and release, you know, no stocking reform, no stocking invasive species, and then harvest non-natives, it's free. It, not only is it free, I mean, it's ink on paper. Oh, right. Yeah, it's free. Yeah, catch and release, free. Right. Harvest uh, non-natives and invasive species, free. And guess what? Kettle Creek in northern Pennsylvania, I got the stocking receipts from PA Fish and Boat and counted up all the, the cooperative nurseries, hatcheries, and and all the state fish. And, you know, you're probably for the whole watershed, you're at like somewhere near forty to 50,000 invasive trout dumped in a year. You know, you could be saving millions of dollars. It's cost saving. It's not spending money. That's crazy. Why do you think Pennsylvania as a compared to these other states who are doing it, why do you think Pennsylvania hasn't implemented these three easy, low-cost options? Yeah, so that's a uh, a good question, and there's a clear reason for it. In Pennsylvania, you know, we're 30, you know, 40 years behind a lot of these other states because essentially in Pennsylvania, their main focus is, you know, we have PA Fish and Boat. Most states have Department of Natural Resources, we have PA Fish and Boat, which, and then we have a DCNR, which is Department of Conservation Natural Resources. So PA Fish and Boat is not really the conservation arm of uh, fish. I mean, fisheries management. I mean, on paper, there's some PDFs where they claim that they are, but that is kind of separated in our state. So PA Fish and Boat does exactly what the name says. It's all about you know stocking fish and anglers and boating. So their focus is just selling licenses and that financially they're in a lot of trouble right now um, because they raise roughly when you add up all the Great Lakes, you know, rainbow trout they stock in Erie and, you know, all the um, invasive trout they stock in the streams, not in the Great Lakes and the cooperative nurseries. There's somewhere around roughly 5 million trout um, a year and that's expensive. I mean, it is, I saw a 2009 number that was like $12.4 million. And that's obviously only grown with inflation, cost of gas to truck these invasive species around, dump them in the creek and drive back and, you know, harvesting the menhaden out of, you know, the Chesapeake Bay and then grinding them down into fish pellets. That's a whole nother issue with striped bass, you know, but it takes a lot of money, a lot of effort, you know, a big carbon footprint for sure to, to stock all these invasive fish species. And Pennsylvania Fish and Boat gets most of their money from angler license sales. They get some federal money through 
um, the Dingle Johnson excise tax, like when you buy some tackle or gas for your boat. But most of it is when you purchase a license and then you purchase a trout stamp. So what they have been experiencing is an increase in costs and a kind of reduced amount of customer base buying fishing licenses. So their costs are going up. The amount of people, you know, the, there was a, a, they hired a third party to do a business analysis on their organization, Penn State Smeal College of Business. And Penn State basically said, you're overcommitted financially and your customer, you know, your customer base is not there to keep up with your expenses and you have to cut trout, you have to cut hatcheries. And that's just a financial report, Dave. That has nothing to do with ecological, you know, invasive threats or anything like that. So that was in 2017. They got that bit of information. I think that that was triggered by concerns about their finances. So they didn't take the recommendations. They still kept producing the same amount of invasive trout species. What they did was they rated a taxpayer conservation grant called Growing Greener 2 for like $27.5 million, and most of that went to hatcheries, just fixing the hatchery. Right, right, God. So there's basically this, I mean, yeah, so you got all this going on, which again, it's like any you know, group, agency, business, you know, there's always struggles. So that is a big struggle for them, I think, maybe getting over. Um, but like you say, you see, I mean, back to the start, you see optimism right here. You see that the, the fact that this is not a hard lift, that probably with the right influence, yeah. maybe more of like your group, you talked about your group, maybe with the getting involved, it, it could help them see the light essentially. And, well, and, uh, yeah, I, I think the question I can address kind of us working with them, but kind of the bigger question, the optimism, what if we took our foot off the native brook trout's neck? That is the question. We've never seen what they can do without us constantly assaulting them with invasive hatchery fish. Right. Well, we've seen them in other states, right? That's what you're saying. Well, yeah, well, oh, yeah, yeah. But I mean, within Pennsylvania, yeah. we don't have a single regulation in Pennsylvania specific for native brook trout. We haven't even started trying. You know, there's a lot of doomsday kind of uh, mentality out there, but we haven't even started trying to not exterminate them with invasive species yet. And, uh, you know, people always, there's all these myths swirling around that brook trout are fragile, they're too fragile to save, climate change is going to eradicate them. And there's also these myths around that, you know, oh, well, invasive brown trout are like these super adaptive, always like more adaptive creatures. And they forget that the human charity that they've gotten has been just yeah, we love them. launching an invasion every year. You know, if they if, if some die, we put more in. We put more, you know, we're not doing that for the brook trout, obviously. And there's there's reasons because, you know, you don't want to stock hatchery fish over native fish. But anyway, the point is, is that if that Kettle Creek watershed is an example, I told you, is 40 to 50 invasive trout species. What could those brook trout do in that watershed without 40 to 50,000 11 inch invasive competitors? you know, pushing them out of thermal refuge. You know, the invasive fish species is part of climate change um, because the climate change is going to make the real estate that these fish push brook trout out of even more important. So, you know, if you just did, we, we have examples all over Pennsylvania where stocking has stopped and brook trout have rebounded. Now, this has only been in like tiny little streams, not in watersheds. So the benefits are not really as significant, but we know that not dumping invasive fish on brook trout works. <laughs> so that's the reason to be optimistic is we haven't tried 
three free to cost saving, you know, management levers we could pull to greatly change Brook Trout's fortune. And the other thing with climate change is there's some, you know, evidence that a lot of these canopies and these dense coniferous forests with hemlocks and white pines will be more buffered to the effects of climate change than some of these, you know, kind of lowland valley streams that don't have a lot of spring influence. So in the other aspect, a reason to be really optimistic about brook trout, Dave, is anglers are not aware of the field of conservation genetics. When you talk to anglers and you say, you know, do you know what, you know, conservation genetics is or do you know you know, does, was anyone aware that native brook trout have the ability to adapt to stressors and change their genes over time? That's not something that's at the forefront of people's minds. And, you know, brook trout can adapt to, you know, stressors. The question with climate change is, will they be able to adapt fast enough? Um, and this is actually what uh, scientists are working on right now is looking at that adaptive capacity and how fast can we make it happen? And, the thing is that, like you, you mentioned the word tool belt or toolbox before. Yeah. Every gene that a brook trout has is part of that tool belt to survive. Maybe one gene allows them to, you know, increase, survive increased water temperature. Maybe another gene allows them to survive a flood. Maybe another gene allows them to survive a drought. So you have all these different tools in this toolbox and when we kind of degrade their populations and um, cause them to decline using invasive fish species, then they lose tools out of their tool belt. That gene's lost forever, and it might have been very valuable. So we can maximize this adaptive capacity by keeping large, robust brook trout populations today, allowing them to move and share their genes with other brook trout populations, and just let that process of adaptive capacity happen. And, you know, some of the, the things that we're doing that I said are free to cost saving, we could increase that adaptive capacity by removing barriers to their, you know, their movement. Yeah. That's where the optimism comes from, Dave, is that, you know, all these kind of myths about the fragility and the hopelessness, and that's not what fishery scientists are looking at. That's not how they see it. They're more just kind of, you know, frustrated overall at, you know, the, the low-hanging fruit that we're not picking. Quick break for a word from our sponsor. With more than 40 years of experience in coffee, the Angler's Coffee Team roasts a full range of coffee with one goal in mind, delivering excellent coffee to every single angler. Responsibly sourced from farms using sustainable growing practices, you can rest easy knowing you are doing your part. Roasted and shipped within 48 hours to assure freshness. For me, it's all about that freshness and taste when I crack open a bag of anglers in the morning. I feel good because I know not only does it taste great, but I am supporting great movements along the way. With a blend for every taste, a dry dropper on the go tea bag option, and a roast sampler, you know Joe at Anglers is serving your needs. It's time to step up to better coffee and more impact for the fish species and causes we love. You can head over to wetflyswing.com slash anglers right now to grab a bag of greatness today. That's anglers, A-N-G-L-E-R-S, to make a change today. 
And I was just going to highlight, we said at the start, um, the episode we had, it was actually Maine Fly Guys, Greg Labonte, uh, up, so up a little bit north of you. He was talking about some of the some of the same issues. But I want to go back to brook trout. Maybe can you talk about the a little bit on the, just the life history of a brook trout? I'm not sure if you can yeah. describe that. Like, yeah, uh, just absolutely. tell us. like, Yeah, and then maybe go back to also life history. And then we, if we have a little time here, just on the history of how we got to where we are. Yeah, so... The interesting thing about brook trout is that, you know, it, it used to be believed much more so than today that these were very sedentary individual, you know, fish. And um, at least in Pennsylvania, our understanding of that changed when a uh, fisheries scientist named Dr. Shannon White, who was at uh, Pennsylvania State University, you know, doing her, um, her research as part of her Ph.D., she did a project in the Loyal Sock Creek, and what she did was she came up with a, a novel way of looking at uh, riverscape genetics and basically the genes of brook trout uh, and the gene flow or movement of their genes, like when they move and spawn with other populations. So what she did was she took um, you know telemetry tags so she could track brook trout's movement, and she implanted them in brook trout. And then what she also did is she took fin clips to look at the genes of the different uh, brook trout tributaries that all flow into the Loyal Sock Creek in Pennsylvania. So she looked at an entire almost, you know, watershed and looked at the genes and tracked the brook trout to see how were they moving. You know, you could see physically that they're moving through the telemetry data, but through the genetics data, if brook trout in stream A turns out to be related to brook trout in stream C, you know movement occurred between those two streams. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yep. So the life history of brook trout um, in that watershed, it showed that somewhere around up to 18% of brook trout were moving from these tributaries using this important large main stem habitat that we think of like smallmouth water or brown trout water. And then going up another tributary to share their genes. And that obviously is driving that adaptive capacity because if, let's say, drought wipes out brook trout population A, you have your two lone survivors or whatever that might have had favorable genes that allowed them to survive that. You want them to go share those genes with everyone else. You want everyone else to have that tool. So you want that gene flow to occur. And that was part of their life history. They'd go down in the main stem and go up. Hmm. another tributary. So the thing that's relevant to note here is those transponders, the the telemetry tags, only lasted about six months. And I think they they, uh, stopped working in about December. So brook trout spawn in like October and like November. And we probably would have seen, I would think, a lot more movement had the telemetry tags lasted for a year would be my layperson's guess, just knowing that brook trout spawn in these small tributaries, um, sometimes even into December. And uh, so, you know, this is a very important part of their life history, but it's not just for gene flow, Dave. The other thing is that, have you ever heard, you know, brook trout, they live in small, infertile headwater environments. There's not a lot of food in there. They're kind of sterile, acidic streams. Well, There's a lot more food in these large waterways. And something that people forget in Pennsylvania is every stream in the state is cold enough for brook trout in December. So people think about climate change. They think about, you know, where we're managing brook trout. 
they forget that there's a whole smorgasbord of food rich, you know, large waterways that brook trout can use their life history to go in those food rich areas and grow during the colder months. And in fact, we find them, you know, I find brook trout in my neck of the woods in smallmouth bass streams and warm water streams in, you know, February. And, you know, after they spawn, they, you know, have a caloric deficit. They use a lot of energy. And then some of these, you know, brook trout seem to be going down and, you know, using this large food rich area to replace that caloric deficit and grow. And would these be the large food rich areas? Would these be areas like the famous areas where there are giant brown trout? Absolutely. So, you know, that these areas, um, you know, and, and like we mentioned, so we have data from the uh, Southern Appalachians showing that invasive trout species act effectively like a barrier sometimes, just like a perched culvert or something like that. So if you have a barrier, it's called like a biotic or biological barrier, you know, the question is, are, you know, brook trout less likely to travel down into these systems and take advantage of these food rich resources to grow if invasive brown trout are there? And the answer is yes, because we have studies from the driftless region where brown trout are removed and brook trout migrate downstream and, and they increase their growth rates. And so if that's the case, if there's, you know, these fish that are these brook trout that need to migrate down, and I'm not just probably a lot of diversity, but say population needs to migrate down a larger river to grow, to get bigger. And if there's brown trout there, they can. Is that impacting them? I mean, because it sounds like we're not going to be addressing the brown trout as much in these popular fisheries. Is that still a concern or do you think? Yeah, the the brown trout are definitely still a concern in those fisheries. It's not that the brown trout aren't invasive of those fisheries. It's from a a conservation perspective, there's a social barrier to kind of doing removal there. So, you know, that's why we would focus on those other strategies we talked about, like maybe catch and release on brook trout, angler education, um, you know, for buy-in with native brook trout conservation projects. You know, there's also another conservation tool you have is barriers. So if you have a great native brook trout population, you know, there are, you know, trade-offs, but, you know, conservation barriers or something we use out west that could be, you know, employed, you know, here. So there's all kinds of other tools we can use if there's a public social barrier to, um, you know, removing invasive brown trout. So, you know, obviously they're not going to be as effective, you know, certainly in catch and release if you have invasive brown trout. But the other thing is, you know, if you have a conservation barrier, you know, you could always in one of the tributaries or something like that, do a project like that. That's where you need a real fisheries scientist. Right. Yeah, that's true. There, there's some of this stuff we would have to follow up. So what and, and what would be like a conservation barrier? What would be an example of that? Yeah. So an example of that would be when fisheries scientists make an impassable, you know, usually vertical drop, like a, you know, a small, you know, um, you know, structure. Yeah. So basically adding a barrier instead of removing barriers, you'd be adding a barrier. Exactly. So, you know, it's funny and it illustrates how um, harmful these invasive fish are. You know, we know how harmful barriers are to native trout. You know, they're very harmful, but it's just a testament to how much, you know, more, um, you know, damaging these invasive brown trout and rainbow trout species are that if you put a barrier in place, it allows the native trout to persist. So it really shows you which is the worst of the two evils. Now, it's not always that the barrier is the worst of the two evils. It's not like black and white. You know, you could have a, 
an, an example where a barrier causes lack of genetic diversity and then the population gets inbred and goes away. So that's why I said you need a fisheries scientist, a real professional to, you know, evaluate these trade-offs and make the best decision. But we do see a lot of, you know, decisions made by fisheries professionals where it saves a species of native trout. You know, it was obviously the right choice. So it's a tough call, but, you know, we leave it to the professionals. Yeah, it makes sense. Okay. And, and so, and on that life history, you mentioned there are some fish that are migrating down. Are there also lots of diversity there where fish are, some are not migrating at all and living in a small section of river up in these higher headwater streams? Brookchild, or do you think they're all migrating? Yeah, no, Shannon's, what, Shannon White's uh, study would suggest there is a large population of, um, you know, of uh, sedentary or, or, you know, uh, resident individuals. But, you know, the question is, I guess, is, you know, in, in that year that they were tracked, you know, would those same fish that stayed be the movers next year or would they, you know, be, you know, sedentary again? And I don't know the answer to that. So, you know, the, the question is, is, you know, this life history trait, and I'm not aware of, you know, what the uh, specific stimuluses are for those fish to move out of, you know, what versus who goes and who stays. Yeah. Right. There's some factor, right. Some environmental factor probably. Yeah. So like with steelhead, which you're very familiar with out in the West coast, you know, we see that when these dams come out, these populations of resident rainbow trout can convert to steelhead. So, you know, the question is with brook trout, this, you know, ace in the back pocket or kind of life history strategy that can be used to their advantage you know, even if all brook trout are not moving in a given year, you know, does having that option in the coming years for different fish, you know, uh, provide a benefit? And, you know, I don't have the definitive answer on that, but I my, my thought would be, you know, you would think it'd be good to have that option. Yeah, it makes sense. And I think that I just think of this like it'd be part of this is, yeah, you find your areas that are places where brook trout are still healthy and you protect those areas, right? And you really make sure those are those are good. And then you start working out from there, expanding out, connecting, you know, those fish to other habitats. But there are some areas, like you said, that are just in brown trout. You know, everybody loves the fish that that's the place maybe we're not going to do the heavy lifting, right? Yeah, exactly. That's not the hill that, you know, yeah. there, there, that's not the hill we're going to die on. There's, you know, right now, just to put it in perspective for you, PANFC, we're asking for one stream in the whole state for native brook trout. Oh, wow. We have 86,000 miles, second only to Alaska, of free-flowing, or not free-flowing, damned up, but of flowing water. And we don't have one stream in the state. We don't have one regulation in the state for native brook trout. Native brook trout are our state fish. They're listed in the Pennsylvania Wildlife Action Plan, and PA Fish and Boat won't create one regulation for them. Wow. They won't create one stream to manage specifically for native brook trout. That's amazing. Are they an endangered? Uh, fi- are they listed federally? No, they're they're not currently listed as threatened or endangered. Is that? I mean, is there? There must be tons of studies there. Is that something that's? They're they're just not. They're, that means their populations are healthy enough that they're not threatened or endangered. Well, I mean, that's a even larger discussion. I mean, the the so the even larger discussion there is the International Union of Conservation of Nature came out with a report that roughly a third of freshwater fish are at risk of extinction. And there was another study that came out that said that 33% of non-threatened fish listed as not threatened 
are experiencing dramatic population declines. So not having that threatened or endangered status doesn't mean that they're doing good. And like I said, Pennsylvania Fish and Boat is flying with the blinders on. They're not really served. They don't know how much brook trout they have. They're not effectively currently inventorying it or checking it. They're just kind of closing their eyes. Oh, right. Yeah. Oh, so there's not even, yeah, there's no studies that even say how many fish are there right now. They don't know. They don't know. They have no idea. Yeah. I mean, they're essentially just stocking 5 million invasive hatchery fish a year and telling everyone the brook trout are okay, but they have no clue. You know, they're not. So basically, um, to go back to your more to your original question there about you know, we don't have one regulation or specifically for native brook trout. They just made the first regulation specifically to protect invasive brown trout in these kind of trophy areas we're talking about. So they did make an invasive brown trout protection regulation, but they don't have one for their state fish, which is a native species. And it's listed as highest conservation need. So, you know, the messaging to the public is very backwards on brook trout from PA Fish and Boat. And one thing that fishery science shows is that if you don't have public education, if you don't have public buy-in, then none of this really conservation initiatives take off much because if you, you know, don't educate the public, they might sabotage a brook trout restoration project by dumping invasive brown trout in it or something like that. So that is a kind of a known commodity that if you don't educate the public and if you do not communicate the importance of these fish, any restoration efforts are less likely to be effective. Not that PA Fish and Boat's really doing any, but. And that's probably with the Native Fish Coalition. Is that a focus for you when you're doing this is thinking like, how do we, how do we educate and make an, I mean, how do you guys do that? Because it seems like maybe a challenge where you're trying to educate and there's a lot of myths out there and stuff. Like, how do you get it? What's your goal to make sure that these things get enacted? How are you guys going to do that? Yeah. So our strategy at PA Native Fish Coalition is first off, we're doing grassroots education. We have events. We go out, we talk to people at fly fishing trade shows. We're at the Lancaster show. We do communication with people on social media. We essentially, we have events like stream cleanups and stuff like that, where we talk to people. We write articles. We do a lot of writing. I don't know if you, do you get Fly Fisherman magazine? I have. I have. Yeah, I don't currently, but okay. yeah, I, love, I mean, Fly Fisherman, I know out of our listeners, we got about, out of all the magazines, I think uh, Fly Fisherman is definitely the most read. And then I think number one might be Trout Unlimited. Yeah. So I had a uh, publication in Fly Fisherman magazine this past spring, I think it came out in like March. And I basically did a layman's literature review of management and mismanagement of uh, native brook trout in Pennsylvania. And, uh, you know, I got a lot of positive feedback from that. So we do a lot of writing. We do op-eds. I've done op-eds in local, um, you know, local uh, media sources. And we try to reach out to anglers, but also non-anglers because, you know, all the hikers, bikers, kayakers, they're all stakeholders in this, you know. So that's the education piece. Then there's the advocacy piece. And what we have done is when PA Native Fish Coalition first formed, we reached out to PA Fish and Boat and we quickly saw that there was no appetite to do anything. I mean, fishing license sales are king there. And it's just really not productive talking with them anymore, really. So, you know, we do maintain some contact, but they actually go out of their way not to talk about brook trout, not to... You know, they don't do any Facebook uh, really posts on like the, the harms of invasive species on brook trout or they don't really echo a lot of what the Eastern Brook Trout Joint Venture puts out. So where we're more focused is we're more focused on the people that hold PA Fish and Boat accountable. 
you know, DCNR has a mission to protect native biodiversity in their wild areas, state parks and state forests. So, you know, we've talked to DCNR a lot and now DCNR is actually coming to PA Fish and Boat and forming a work group to, you know, try to get them to stop stocking invasive species in their areas they're trying to manage for native biodiversity. You know, one thing I'd like to do is, um, you know, reaching out and I have in the past and I'd like to kind of this is where the education comes in is reaching out to the legislature. You know, there's House and Senate Fish and Game Committees who are supposed to be, you know, supervising PA Fish and Boat. You know, it's gone really far off the rails, but talking to them and trying to, you know, get accountability, um, if nothing else, financial accountability. I mean, you know, ecological accountability may not be a big talking point with the legislature, but I mean, finance wise, fishing licenses are, you know, going up in price and, uh, you know, fishing access is, you know, becoming an issue in some areas of Pennsylvania. So there's different levers to pull and to talk about there and to try to hold these people accountable. And the, the education all feeds back into it. The more you educate people, you know, doing podcasts like this and asking people to reach out to their legislators on stocking reform, you know, asking people to call their fish and game departments and ask for more native, uh, you know, fish fishing opportunities, and in terms of uh, local accountability, you know, there's organizations like that are that are basically saying they're doing conservation. And there's the question of, well, what is conservation? They say that, you know, stocking invasive brown and rainbow trout is a quote unquote conservation project. Reaching out to those people, you know, in a friendly manner and trying to talk to them and get them to not do those things. And then if they're not willing to change, holding them accountable you know, that all factors into the strategy of educate and then advocate and try to get these changes. Right. Wow. Yeah. No, it sounds like you guys are doing some amazing stuff. And I think that's uh, something we hear a lot about, right? The grassroots, you know, if you want to get something done, um, you know, whether that's like Yvonne Chouinard with Patagonia or any of these amazing groups and people, it's like you start at the grassroots because that's that's right. What would never underestimate what an ama- you know a small group of individuals can do. And that's what you, where you guys are starting. Oh, yeah. This is great. Let's take it out of here, uh, James here. And I got a quick little uh, rapid fire section here. Um, You've mentioned quite a bit on this, some groups, but who would be like if somebody wanted to take this further, you know, the Native Fish Coalition is there. Are there other groups in PA, other groups nationally you would recommend people uh, tie in with, check in with to kind of help learn more about what we're talking about here? Yeah. So there's, uh, you know, NANFA, which is the North American Native Fish Coalition. Association and uh, they they put out a lot of good content, particularly on uh, smaller native fish that like minnows and species and darters and stuff like that. You know, and then another uh, people that seem to be advocates for native fish. Uh, you know, and in a lot of cases, uh, backcountry hunter and anglers. Oh yeah. From what I've seen from them, seem to be pretty native fish centric. Um, there's a lot of good organizations out there. You know. Trout Unlimited does a lot of good things for native fish, obviously with like the dam removal advocacy they're doing, you know, there's the, the Klamath and then there's, you know, the Pebble Mine was great. The only thing with Trout Unlimited also has some things that they kind of have a, a decision to make, whether they're going to support, you know, native fish or invasive fish in some places. And, you know, it gets down to the, the term conservation. There's fishing and there's conservation and I think that those two different disciplines have been kind of 
washed or mixed together in some kind of areas where it's questionable. Because if you look at conservation, you're really trying to protect native biodiversity. So, you know, if you do a project to establish, you know, a large fishable population of wild invasive brown trout, that food web is going to suffer. The biodiversity is going to suffer there. So you're really decreasing biodiversity and there's no such thing as conservation of invasive species. So I would call that more of a social project or maybe a, a water quality, you know, a water, it might help the Chesapeake Bay by reducing some nitrogen and sediment. But, you know, when it comes to one thing, I definitely want to talk about what the listeners is like, you heard like the field of dreams analogy with like restoration. Like if you build it, they will come, you know, like right, right. we can just restore our way, you know, out of trouble with native fish. The problem is, and I'll touch on this quickly is what we see in a lot of the research and a lot of the case studies is when we take a stream that has native fish populations, native brook trout, and we do one of these big restorations where we come in and we put all these engineered log and, you know, wood and structures that call them like lunker bunkers and root wads and all these big, deep overhanging structure. Research out of West Virginia and Wisconsin has shown that these structures often help the uh, invasive trout species dominate and completely either eradicate or push out native brook trout, which is kind of counterintuitive. Because what happens is, is that these brown trout, you know, invasive trout, um, is particularly in one case study, grew their population by pushing brook trout out of these habitat structures and use these habitat to grow and actually all but eliminate native brook trout from the watershed. And the irony is the project was done for native brook trout. And at this point, it may have wound up in, in their eradication. I think that's a great example, but I think, you know, and I think that a part of it is what are your goals of the project? You know, if your goals are to grow brown trout fish, then that's a great project. So I think, yeah. you know, that's an example of somebody who just didn't, you know, have the right goals. You know, they didn't, it wasn't a successful project, but again, I think that part of our history is we're learning from our mistakes and we're doing it right now. Right? Yeah. I mean, like we're not a hundred percent where we don't know, like even you and even me and everybody, we don't know exactly that this is all going to work. And that's the interesting thing, right? Yes, that is true. But now we have the data to know that where you have what's called a sympatric population, where you have both, you know, the native trout and the invasive trout, we have the data for brook trout anyway, to know that if you do these large engineered structures that create deep overhanging habitat, we now know that the brook trout can't benefit from that and that the brown trout can use it to take over. But like you said, stream restoration is an evolving science. And what looks promising is some of these newer techniques where instead of trying to create a channel with all these habitat features, there's a, a shift in stream restoration that's happening out east, particularly in Pennsylvania, where you look at just excavating, you know, silt and things that have built up over time from logging and deforestation. And you look at just creating a floodplain, an entire floodplain the stream can flood in and not designing a channel and trying to keep it rigidly in place, but just letting the channel establish itself within the floodplain. Because these streams are dynamic things. They move, they switch braids, they'll dewater one channel. So you know, we're just finding out in general that trying to lock them down in one channel form, right. you know, it just doesn't work. No, it doesn't. And that's the thing is that, yeah, you 
the best thing is like mother nature, right? I mean, we can do whatever we want with designs, but at the end of the day, mother nature is the one that creates the habitat. So how do we, you know, give it enough room to just do its own thing? I think that's the take home message. It, exactly. If you try to make a stream do something it doesn't want to do, you're going to wind up with a bunch of, uh, you know, wooden and rock structures beat to crap. And, you know, the angler that is walking the bank will, you know, step over them when enough silt is deposited on them and the stream is moved out of the way. Exactly. And I think, again, I think it's all on a case by case basis. I mean, I'm sure there's places like that where that project would work great. It's just that, you know what I mean? Like it's all case by case. Yeah. There's areas around uh, infrastructure. Like, I mean, if you got someone's house or if you got like a bridge or a big piece of public infrastructure, I mean, yeah, you have to armor up the banks and really hold the stream, you know, in one area you know, how effective that'll be over time is, you know, out the, the jury's out. But, you know, obviously you have to save that house. You have to protect that bridge, whatever. I'm talking more about where it's done specifically for the, the brook trout. Yeah, it's around infrastructure. Yeah, or brook trout, right. Well, give us one. I want to, uh, Jane, take us out of here. I always love asking the podcast uh, music question. So do you listen to podca- other podcasts or music, one or the other? Do yeah, you know, I do with? listen to other podcasts. Uh, you know, I, I listen, I just like seeing in general, like what the kind of mentality and the kind of uh, cultural feel of the fly fishing community is. Since a lot of times that's who we're, you know, working with and engaging in the conservation aspect. So I, I like to kind of keep my finger on the the pulse, so to speak. I listen to Tom Rosenbauer's yep. Orvis Fly Fishing Podcast. Uh, since I'm a big time uh, night fisherman and I've been doing that for, you know, all kinds of trout, native and invasive, I get a kick out of listening to the um, uh, Dominic Swintowski at Trout Bitten talk about, uh, you know, night fishing and, uh, and that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, obviously, I've listened to your podcast for a long time and have really enjoyed a lot nice. of the, uh, the episodes. And yeah, I mean, I, I kind of uh, just try to take a whole breadth of what's going on out there and fly fishing. And, you know, I read different magazines. And Do you have any podcasts in your queue right now that are not fly fishing, other podcast types of genres or, you know, podcasts? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I like uh, one that I really like is U.S. Fish and Wildlife has an awesome podcast it's called fish of the week and essentially it's not fishing related but they take a lot of these like you know native uh fish species yep darters or whatever yeah yeah or like sometimes like big head buffalo or ciscos or sucker species and they kind of something that nobody is fishing for really but is a cool fish exactly and you know these are things that are swimming around your wading boots and have these incredible you know life history strategies and these kind of important niches in the ecosystem and you know part of the reason why i think we all like fly fishing is we like the kind of uh we like how things work we like you know a lot of the interesting aspects about how these ecosystems function so when you step in a river and there's maybe three non-game species that you understand what their role is in the food web how their habitat that really adds something for me when i can go in my streams and last night i was night fishing i, I put the spotlight in the stream i was like oh there's a northern hog sucker and you know their last episode was about like hog suckers and um you know how they kind of use camouflage and they don't really run right away they kind of stay where they are and yeah you know true to form what they said i i put the light on them and everything else ran away and he just hung out <laughs> the, the flight or fright or what is it yeah the, you know what i mean it's like that's one tactic but um as we head out of here give us one call to action somebody's listening now they're they've heard all this today what is one thing they can do 
to get involved to help brook trout? I'm glad you brought that up because that's really my goal with these talks is, you know, it centers on this call to action. So what I would say is if you're out there, you know, and hey, I like fishing for, you know, brown trout and rainbow trout too. You know, native fish conservation is not about hating anything, you know, or hating one species, you know. Yep. You guys aren't trying to eradicate brown trout from the planet. No, no, not possible. Not trying to do it. But what I would say is, you know, call or email your fish and boat or DNR, your fisheries managers, and ask them, you know, for biggest thing we can do is stocking reform. Nationally, stocking reform should be our number one issue in native fish conservation because it's the damage we're paying to inflict. It costs real dollars and cents, big money. And it's, you know, we can stop stocking of invasive species a lot faster than we can fix climate change. So reaching out to your fish and boat, your DNR, and asking your fisheries managers to enact common sense stocking reforms, you know, reaching out to the, you know, like every state's got one of those find your legislator tools where you just, you know, you can send them an email, email them, tell them that this is an issue for you and that, you know, you would like to see stocking reform uh, you know, to the benefit of native species. That's one of the biggest things we can do. One of the other things is just talk about it. You know, if you read the article in Fly Fisherman, or if you listen to this podcast and, you know, you learn about, hey, there's this whole other thing besides climate change and development, you know, invasive fish species is just as dangerous, just as important to address. Talk about it to non-anglers. Talk about it to anglers. You know, this is something that's just suffering in silence. It's not really, you know, it's kind of the unspoken impairment that would probably be, you know, one of the ones we're paying to create and easiest to at least, you know, make a little bit better for these fish. So just the same thing we're doing. Educate, advocate, talk to your decision makers and tell people that's that's the thing they can do. Perfect. All right. All right, James, uh, we'll send everybody out to uh, nativefishcoalition.org if they want to uh, connect more. And uh, yeah, thanks for all your time today. This has been an amazing conversation. I think uh, there's uh, plenty of, uh, you know, more of these to come. So I uh, definitely keep up the good fight and glad to have you there. Hey, thanks for the opportunity, Dave. My pleasure. That is a wrap. You can grab all of the show notes at wetflyswing.com. And please follow us on Instagram and share this episode out with someone you love. Please send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com, if you have any feedback or want us to put together an episode on this podcast for you. Check in anytime. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and would love to meet up with you on the water. We have new fly fishing schools going all year long and all around the country. So if you want to connect, let's do it right now. All right, time to get out of here. I hope you have a great evening. I hope you have a great morning or great afternoon wherever in the world you are. And I appreciate you for stopping by and checking out the show today. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.